Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good, Good evening. And good middle of the night. Good middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're centered today on your in your video. It looks great. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I realized the last reels. I'm like, can't even see me. It's like so dark. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to have a professional office for this kind of stuff, but not yet. Yeah, I was thinking about moving my desk to a direction where you wouldn't be looking at closet doors. Yeah. But, you know, I don't really know. It's not designed for any other option unless I do something really weird. So I have to figure because I have some great paintings and stuff that I could put up in my, you know, my old daughter's drawing that was famous when I was in my old office in you know, back in Studio City. But uh, it is what it is. I have my bookshelf at least back there. Yeah, I have, I have terrible lighting in here as well. So you look we're, good. We're low budget. Well, I look I look better than I feel. Put it that way. <laughs> I've had <laughs> I've had quite the ordeal. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? You want me to start today? Of course. Yes. Of course. Okay. First, I'd like to apologize to everyone for last week for getting the the dates on the Louisville August 10th through 13th conference wrong. I had the wrong city, the wrong dates. I want to make sure everybody shows up at the right time. So hopefully, and the link to that is on my events page, or you can go to Beloved Holistics page and find Nathan's links there as well. So just want to, I want to reemphasize how foolish I felt last week getting that wrong wow. okay so you're human yeah so i've been talking about my eye and my floaters and my stranger things monsters in there for quite a while and and you know there's a reason that these things happen but no you know you don't it don't always lead to something worse but it did this time this past week i was in jacksonville north carolina and I got there a day early. And so I went for a long walk. I went to see a movie. And then I walked back. It's about a two-mile walk to the movie theater from my hotel. And I got back around five o'clock and I wanted to watch the end of the golf tournament. So I put my eye patch on because my floaters were bothering me. And about an hour later, the golf tournament was over. I took the eye patch off and I couldn't see out of the bottom of my eye. I had completely lost my field of vision in the bottom part of my eye. And I knew immediately what that meant, that that means that I had a retinal detachment. There's really not much else that can do that. But it was at seven o'clock on a Sunday night. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to go to an ER and be seen by just anybody. So I waited till the next day and it hadn't gotten worse when I woke up in the morning. So I went to teach and I started my lectures and I, I gave the two morning lectures. And during that time, I asked the secretary for the birthing center. Thank you very much for those people there. And Jacksonville, who found me an appointment with an eye doctor, retinal specialist at two o'clock or 2.30 in the afternoon. So I stopped teaching and I got driven over there and immediately they looked at my eye and they said, yep, you've got a major retinal detachment all the way to the macula. So, because by that point I could tell it was getting worse as that morning progressed with me talking and teaching. Um, so they suggested that I have surgery immediately. And I said, okay what's involved? And they said, well, first you have to go down to Wilmington, which was about an hour and 15 minutes south. That's where they do the surgeries. And I have to say, everybody was unbelievably polite and professional, but the options were limited to me because of the blood in my eye from previously, I, they couldn't do standard laser surgery. So normally what they do is they put, a, they put air in your eye to push the retina back up against the, the eyeball. 
But if I put air in my eye, I'd be stuck in uh, at sea level for the next six to eight weeks. And I really, could, I really couldn't do that. So the other option was to put oil in my eye, which then I could fly two days later and get back home, but I would need a second operation. And so that's what I did. So I'm going to need another operation about a month from now. But so my retina is reattached and I can see my fingers in all my quadrants, but everything's out of focus because I'm looking through oil. So I'm going to have to live like this for the next month. And it's, a, you know, it's sort of annoying get a mild headache from that. Uh, the pressure in my eyes up a little bit. I'm on some drops and things like that. But uh, when I got back to St. George, I went to an eye doctor here. And again, very professional, uh, very medicalized system though. You check in with somebody, then somebody else, then you wait in a waiting room for about half an hour, 40 minutes for your scheduled appointment. Then they take you back to another waiting room where you meet some other tech who's very sweet and very nice and they run some stuff on your eyes. They put some drops in your eyes. They test your eyes. Then they take you to another tech who does photos of your eyes. And then you go sit in another waiting room. And then after about an hour and 45 minutes, the doctor comes in for literally less than five minutes, takes a look in my eye, rambles off some numbers that to his automated recording system that's in his pocket, who's transcribing for him, gives me an extra type of drops, doesn't really explain it very well. So I said, no, I'm really concerned about the pressure in my eye. And he says, well, that's what these drops are for. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that would have been nice for you to tell me why you're giving me the extra drops rather than just giving me the extra drop. But so that, and then I'm going to go back and see them next week. And I have to go back every week now to take care of that. But it, you know, I have to commend the system. They got me into surgery right away. Everybody was really nice to me. Uh, they did know I was a physician. I don't know if that made a difference. They made me very goofy with some great medicines. I did have to get stuck three times to get my IV started, though. I felt really bad for the first guy who attempted the first two. And then the third, another person came in and got it in right away. And you know how that is. We've all been there. Yep. We've all yep. been there. And then afterwards, I got Dilaudid and Oxycodone, and I was really feeling pretty good. The midwife there, Meredith, let me stay at her house overnight. And then she drove me to the eye doctor the next day to get my patch removed and that sort of thing. And then she drove me back to Jacksonville, where I just hung out for 24 hours waiting for my flight, canceled the seminar. Uh, the thing that was really interesting about it, though, was that every time I offered to shake hands with these eye doctors, they wouldn't shake my hand. They gave me fist bumps. Oh. <laughs> and I'm just thinking that's really a sad tale of where we've become because of this whole six feet apart, wear a mask, germ fear thing that we've now gotten rid of something that for my entire lifetime has been a signal of camaraderie and respect and that sort of thing. And, and there's no handshaking. Now, that doesn't mean most people won't shake hands. Most people, all midwives will shake my hand immediately. But mm -hmm. these two doctors who work in these two hospitals would not shake one in, one in North Carolina and one in Utah. Same thing. Fist bumps. And what is a fit? How different is a fist bump? You know, I, I don't know. It's the back of your hand and it's your knuckles. So it's not like you're shaking hands and then touching somebody, I suppose. But well, we've been touching, touching, we've been touching yeah. people all our lives. Yeah. Interesting. So no, they, right. they bought the, they drank the Kool-Aid and speaking of drinking the Kool-Aid. So that's going on and it's a little annoying for my eye, but you know, I often mention that I get emails once a month from my former internist. And I got another one yesterday. And again, still promoting at this point, April, whatever it is, of 2023, still promoting the bivalent vac vaccine uh, for everybody. And I just, it, it's 
it's just bizarre for me because I just don't understand between the promotion of the vaccine and the fist pumping and all that. It's just the world has changed and I haven't changed with it. Yes. And this is this is a we're going back to what I believe it was something that David, Dr. David Hayes wrote, right? About how things change and you notice that life continues to move forward and you're starting to feel less and less connected to the way that things are changing. And you know, I think about that all the time and some of the stuff that we talk about and how we kind of feel like the world has gone crazy. And then I look back in history and even though for us, this feels very like unique to our times. So many times in history, people have looked at things changing and not felt like it was how they wanted the world to change. And you just kind of watch it. So it's interesting. That's a good point. That's a really good point, Bliss. I mean, things do change and people get very comfortable in their own, in their own setting. I mean, my father, for instance, never, ever, ever used a computer. Yeah. He didn't want to, mm-hmm. and, you know, not that any of us want to go back to going to Blockbuster anymore, but, but this is, this is a, a more of the human thing. And, and I'm sure that it's probably culturally changed before we, we just don't recognize it because we live in it and maybe we don't live long enough to see the trends. This has just happened so quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a handshake was a bond. I mean, yeah. deals were done on handshakes. Yeah. The handshake was like giving your word that I promise. Yeah. Yeah. And fist bump just doesn't doesn't do it for me. Well, I wanted to ask you a question. Okay. So you talked about the physical part of this whole thing. Yeah. Wondering how you feel emotionally. Well, just the pause tells you something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling a little more fragile than I ever felt. So that's, you know, not real comfortable. I mean, eyesight is something that we all take for granted those of us seeing people. Yeah. And suddenly when you can't can't see very well, and uh, I know that I'm going to need at least two more surgeries on this eye. So it, yeah, it takes its toll. I'm feeling a little bit down about it. Yeah. Well, I want thinking, well, you know, I just wanted to be able to connect with that part of you. And just be able to tell you, I'm speaking for all of our listeners who are listening right now, how much we love and care for you. And we just want you to feel surrounded by love. And I know that the body is fragile, but your spirit and soul is strong. And I'm so glad that we get to have a conversation today, like we always do. Well, thanks, Bliss. I mean, I did go for a hike this morning because I got to try to keep physically up, but I, but I have been resting more. Part of it may be the general anesthesia. You know, my logical brain says you put under general anesthesia, it screws you up for a while. And then I'm taking all this eye drop medication, which even though it's eye, it's local, it still gets absorbed systemically. So there's that. But I, I think that, that I appreciate that. I'm hoping that you and all your colleagues, after they listen to this podcast, will, will take out their cauldrons and come up with some uh-huh. brew that, that helps restore <laughs> My, my spirit as well as my eyesight. Yeah. <laughs> We're all going to send you good, loving juju. And I understand that feeling. Like even when I just get a little bit sick, I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, I was really low energy and I've been doing a bunch of testing and stuff myself. And I think that every time I feel that way, I'm like, oh, I'm going to feel this way forever. And it just becomes because I, I usually feel so good in my body, you know? So I understand that kind of feeling down, but 
I just want you to know that you are so loved and I'm glad that we have the medical advances to be able to do what they did. It's just really kind of miraculous. It it is miraculous. And I, and I want to thank the people again, all the people that came to the conference, we're going to probably reschedule it. I gave them the option of getting their money back or, or coming to a different conference. And pretty much they all said, you know, we're local here. We want you to come back. So I'll do that. But I'm sure it's disappointing. I mean, they took two days off yeah. to be with me. And so that that was bothering me, I think, more than my own physical um, malady at the time was how bad Not I felt so. about leaving people just hanging. Yeah. Well, okay. some things we can't control. So No, no, we can't. So what's our what's our I have lots of other things. But before we do that, what's our topic today? We're going to be talking about posterior babies. And one of the reasons why we're talking about posterior babies is because I just had a really epic birth experience and did um, spinning babies workshop. I was with Nicole Morales from San Diego and we did the basic spinning babies on Friday. And then Saturday was shoulder dystocia from that perspective. And Sunday was breach from that perspective. So it was really great and really in depth. And, and then I had this birth where I got to use a bunch of my tools. So I thought that would be a great topic because I know that um, it's the reason why a lot of babies get moms and babies go through a cesarean. So I just thought it would be something that people would be interested in. Yeah. And if you can share some of the wisdom from Nicole Morales uh, for our listeners and for me, that would be great as well. I'll do my best. Okay. I'll do my best. Do you have anything on your plate or should I just start to go through some of my, my usual laundry? Well, yeah. I'll share the birth story when we get to the topic. No, I mean, I think things are pretty pretty much the same around here, except for I am going to be leaving for the summer and traveling. So making some of those plans, I was hoping to come by and see you, but you weren't going to be around. So I might stay at your house without you being there, which will be super weird, but you know, so just having fun planning what's next. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I'm going anywhere now for the next four weeks because I'm, I did have my, was planning to go visit my daughter in New York. And I, I think that I'm going to put that off. And then there's something exciting that may happen the first week in June, but I can't talk about it yet. So I'll let you know. Okay. And Rixa and I are getting closer and closer to finishing our twin paper. We had a great, great, meeting, great meeting yesterday. So awesome. again, yesterday, meaning for people this listening for the first time means two weeks ago because <laughs> our podcasts are delayed two weeks. All right. A couple of things. By the time this podcast comes out, I'm hoping that I heard correctly that baby Mila is going to be back with her parents in Texas. I heard they didn't even get to the hearing that just somebody the court just said, give them their baby back. And I haven't heard really well if that's actually happened or not. But that doesn't mean we should stop pursuing why this happened. And again, I was very vehement when I on the Mad as Hell podcast, where I talked about that we need, you know, people need to contact this pediatrician's pediatrician's office. They need to contact their local child protective service and local representatives, find out why this sort of thing happened. Because if we just say, oh, we made a mistake, but that's not, that's not going to stop them from doing it again to somebody right. else. Right. And I think that the thing, you know, you, you mentioned last time was once it's happened, the damage has already been done. So I think what you're saying is that like, you know, it would be great for us to figure out some changes so that we can prevent this from happening. But I think the the good thing about what I've seen through this particular story is that our actions did make a difference. The calls, the reaching out, the social media, all of that stuff put a lot of pressure on them. And that's why they didn't have to wait for that. The actual proceedings to happen. Yeah. So that's good. And that's good for us to know that we can make a difference in that. 
Okay, just a couple quick news items here. Second Heart Looks on Instagram sent me a link to a Jordan Peter B. Peterson podcast, number 345, where he, he talks to Bjorn Lomborg. Now, Bjorn Lomborg is actually a guy that I tend to respect. He's a climatologist. I mean, he's more than that. That's how I know him. He's one of those people that sort of believes in global warming, but doesn't believe that that all this stuff that we're doing is going to make a whole lot of difference. So he's much more of a rational person. But around the 35-minute mark, they start talking about how they can rescue moms and babies. And his answer, Bjorn Lomberg, was, was bring more of them to the hospital. <laughs> so I just, you know, you have to listen to it. It's about six or seven minutes long, that segment. And, you know, I'm not going to ref- I'm not going to do a refutation like I did to Dr. Mama Jones, who talked to about Candace Owens. I'm not going to do that. But he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what that he thinks that that the hospital system is filled with good intentions and that, that good intentions actually occur. And that's a bit naive for somebody of his caliber. I'm really surprised. He says something like, if we spend a dollar on this health care, we're going to save eighty seven dollars down the road. Now, anybody who comes up with a number that's like that precise to me, that makes that's somebody who's just believing the Kool-Aid that they're drinking because that stuff never happens. When the government says, if we just spend money here, we're going to save money there. You know, write me a list of when that ever happened. It never happens. So (laughs) I haven't gotten, he sent it to me too. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, but I definitely will. And um, yeah, it's only about seven minutes. It's not, it doesn't take that much time. And, and then he also trusts, he supposedly trusts the WHO blindly on its recommendations for mothers and babies. And, and again, anybody who trusts the WHO, WHO blind. Here's a guy who who sort of is outside the absolute narrative of if we only get rid of all fossil fuels, we'll save the planet. He's not part of that, but then he but then he falls into this sort of conspiracy thing, and it's just an odd thing to think about. That and and again, there and Jordan B. Peterson is very influential. So it's when they get people on there like that who say these, and then they're not challenged. I'm not sure Jordan B. Peterson knows much about how to save mothers and babies, but. But maybe at some point they'll have people on who might be able to give a counter argument to that, right? Should be asked. Okay. Speaking of somebody who might be able to give a counter argument to that is our our friend, Dr. Sarah Wickham. And Dr. Sarah Wickham is going to be on the podcast in June, which I'm very excited about. She put out a, a Instagram post the other day that I thought was really impressive because it's not even something that I considered. And I thought, you know, I usually think deeply about these things, but she says there's usually it was a five slide thing. I just made a copy of one of the slides, but she talks about context matters. And she talks about postpartum hemorrhage. And she says the postpartum hemorrhage rate for women who had a postpartum hemorrhage before is similar to the rate in women who haven't had a baby before. So when they say, if you've had a postpartum hemorrhage, you're more likely to have another postpartum hemorrhage. That's not exactly true. Your risk is actually the same as a woman who's had a postpartum hemorrhage. What, the, what it doesn't tell you is that the risk goes down in a woman who has had a baby and didn't have a postpartum hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. All right. So we never say to a woman yeah. who hasn't had a postpartum hemorrhage, oh, you're less likely to have it. No, we say to a woman that's had a postpartum hemorrhage, you're more likely to have it. But all she's more likely to have it is the same as a woman having her first baby. The risk doesn't go up from your first time. It just goes down if you haven't had one. And we, don't, and we don't think like that. But Sarah Wickham does. And so that's why I'm very excited that, you know, she'll be coming on the podcast. I don't know where I'll even start with her bliss because she's got 
book after book after topic after topic where she's got just such insight. So maybe we'll get her well, on. I think, yeah, but, I think the most stuff that she out on her site has to do with a recent study having to do with home birth and comparing that people who planned hospital births had higher chance of a lot of interventions than planned home births. So I think that would be a good place to start since that's right up our alley. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to have her on. You know, I'm a part of the ACOG email program. So I get their emails and I get their discussions. And, and one came out about a week or so ago that I found depressing and amusing at the same time. It was, it was put out by a physician. And the question was this, he says, does it trouble anyone else that it appears that the compensation for doula support is identical to that for a physician for a vaginal delivery of a woman with Medicaid in California? So in other words, he's complaining that obstetricians make only the same amount as doula might be paid by Medicaid, which is called Medi-Cal in California. Yeah. And I'm laughing to myself a little bit because mm-hmm. quite frankly, from my perspective, the doula does a lot more work. Um, and the fact is that obstetricians <laughs> get paid poorly by Medicaid because they've always accepted the fact that they'll take the, they'll take that piss poor reimbursement. So when you subsidize something, you get more of it. So if you continue to take lower and lower reimbursement, what's the incentive for people reimbursing you to give you more reimbursement or give you less? So I think right. that they, I think that the people mm-hmm. in, in the government, maybe I'm not very confident that they're that wise people, but maybe they see that there is data to say that having a doula at a birth, actually a better intervention than having an obstetrician at a birth. What do you think about that? I mean, I look, I value doula. I'm so glad that, that we're recognizing the contribution that they make in this arena, but you know. I do think that as a midwife, we're not getting paid enough from them to be able to have that be sustainable. So I get I get the uh, concern from that OB in terms of the reimbursement. I don't think the doula should necessarily be paid less because I think that what they're getting is probably really fair for the work that they do, as you were acknowledging. But I do think that it's it's hard to base a business on, you know, a living, I should say, on on what they are compensating. Yeah. And I would just say, I would just say to my doctor colleagues, you know, sort of made your own bed and now you're reaping what you've sown. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors there, but, it, but, it, but it, it's true. I mean, you know, doula's overhead is not very high. Whereas obstetricians, right. you know, they have board certification, they have med mal requirements, they have office thing, they have, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're regulated beyond belief. They've got to have electronic medical records. They've got they got you know a lot of overhead, and so for them to be paid poorly and and maybe equally to what a doula makes isn't fair. On the other hand, it's of your own making, right? And it's and it's how our our services have been devalued. For instance, a lot of Medicaid patients will probably find in their pocket a way to pay a doula, so that doula might get paid by them anyway. Whereas no way would a Medicaid person actually generally go outside and pay a physician. So. The value of yeah. our services has been diminished drastically, and I would say partly because of our own doing. And therefore, you have a right to complain, but don't just complain, do something about it. You know, get together with your organization and tell Medicaid or Medi-Cal that you're not going to do it for that little amount anymore and, and see what happens. And maybe you'd have to give up something. Maybe you'd lose some revenue for a while. Maybe you'd have to make a sacrifice, but then maybe better care because what they're paying now just leads to large volume practices 
And, you know, we've talked in that right. nauseum on our podcast about the quality of care you get in a, in a volume practice versus an individualized practice that the, the, the midwifery model supports. Hey, Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsors. Yeah, we're going to talk about Needed. And, you know, that's the product that I've been using, and I think you probably have too. Yeah, and, I love it. Uh, yeah. So tell me why. Well, you know, we're very selective about who we partner with. And Needed is an amazing company that's women-owned and really has done the work to bring really quality products to the market. One of them is Julie Sawaya, who was a client of mine. She has two home births. And we did do an episode on her. So you guys can go back and check her out because it's really amazing they've done. And I love the products because of that. And also, I, I really love supporting a company that has a supplement that is helpful for women who have nausea. So they have their prenatal vitamins in a powder form and also in another form that's called, they call essentials, which is just the basics. So that if a woman is having nausea, which happens quite frequently, they can still take their prenatal vitamins. So. Yeah. Julian Ryan, they hand selected every ingredient and nutrient dose, and they spent thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature to come up with the best possible combination of substances in their products, which, which include things like their prenatal vitamin, which you just mentioned, which comes in that powdered form, which you love. And they have a pre and probiotic. They have a collagen supplement. They have a stress support, sleep and relaxation support, hydration support. They have choline and CoQ10. And they also have a men's health plan as well. So get your husband's <laughs> online. Go check them out. You go to thisisneeded.com and use the code word birthing instincts. When you do that, you'll save 20% off your one-time order. So that's thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts for 20% off your one-time order. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. I got an email from one of our listeners about another midwife option being closed down in Oregon. Um, the There's a hospital that had a created a midwife unit, employed like eight midwives, I think, and a bunch of ancillary staff. And they opened in 2019, and now four years later, they're closing their unit because they say for financial concerns, apparently they can't compete with freestanding birth centers that are out there. Partly, again, maybe back to the fact that their overhead is so high and whatever. And so they're closing down their unit. And the biggest tragedy of that was that that unit was very accepting of taking home birth transports. So now that whole community yeah. is stuck again without an option for women who wanted to have a midwife, but maybe say didn't want to do it at home, but they wanted the midwifery option in the hospital and because, again, of financial concerns, and again, I'm wondering what these financial concerns are. Does everything have to be that expensive? But the medical model has so many cogs in it that it just makes it so expensive to, to operate. How expensive could it be if you didn't have all your protocols and rules and regs and all that stuff and all those risk managers and all that ancillary personnel and, and top-heavy administration? Why don't you fire some administrators and keep the midwives? <laughs> yes. Yeehaw. That won't happen. I may, have told this, I may have told this story about my mother, but it just bears repeating because it's such a good story. You know, my mother, when she started teaching, she worked in a institution and when she started in a school district and the school district, when she started, had like the highest enrollment it ever had. And then gradually, as the baby boomer generation began to drop off, the enrollment declined. When she started, there were the most students they ever had and they had one principal. By the time she finished 20 years later, they had no music teacher, no gym teacher, 
six assistant principals and one principal to manage a student body that was probably 30% less in number than there were 20 years before that. So every time they had a budget cut, they cut a teacher. They never cut administrators. And that's typical in our industry as well. You know, you never see hospitals laying off administrators. They'll lay off janitors. They'll lay off people that actually do the work get laid mm-hmm. off. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts? No, not on that. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so let's get to your birth story because I'd like to talk a little bit about posterior babies because it is something that comes up a lot. And it's just, you know, again, it's one of those terms that's labeled as malpositioning. And, you know, you and I don't like that term, right? Yeah. You know, when I was taking with Nicole, the class with Nicole, she was saying, you know, we don't want to like pathologize any baby. Like they're doing exactly what they need to do. They find where there's space and they, they navigate the pelvis. We've talked about the lock and key before, you know, each mom has a unique pelvis and then each baby that she has, has a unique way of navigating the pelvis because of of their body and their anatomy and their needs inside of the pelvis. So they they go to where they can find some space. So I would love for you to define posterior first, since I'm going to probably be doing a lot of talking. Okay, well, I'm going to freely admit this is off the cuff here because of my traumatic week. I had no time really to do anything. So a posterior baby is defined by the position of the baby's head. All right, we define baby's position in the pelvis by the occiput, all right, which is the back mm-hmm. of the baby's head. A normal baby will enter the pelvis mm-hmm. generally occiput transverse. The most common position is left occiput transverse. And uh, it's weird because I'm talking about a head down baby and I, I don't get a chance to talk about head down babies very often. So I'm having kind of, kind of a, <laughs> fun, a fun recollection here. Um, as babies come down, they, they internally rotate and they try to, ideally they, wrote to, they rotate to occiput anterior position, anterior in relation to the mom's pubic bone. That's anterior, the sacrum is posterior. When a baby rotates the other way, and then and then and then the head will deliver by extension and then and then restitute back to its position. So when a baby comes in the and rotates the wrong way or comes in directly OP, that first of all, my belief is that the diameter of the head's a little wider. And secondly, in the pelvis in general doesn't facilitate in most pelvises doesn't facilitate easy flex extension of the head from that position. And so the, it's, a, it's a harder labor to labor itself down and through that period for a lot of women who, especially first-time moms, and it's a lot more comfort, uncomfortable because it's putting more, the, the bigger part of the head is pushing on the sacrum and all the nerves that come out of the sacrum. And so you hear often in correlation with a posterior baby is the mom's having back labor. Now, that's not always true, but that's that's how people understand it. So that, I don't know if that's what you wanted me to say, but sort of yeah. that's, that's how I look at it. Yeah. Know, we, and, and what was your experience when you were practicing in the hospital or, you know, I guess even now, what was your experience with posterior babies? Like, what did you feel when you had someone who was presenting po- with a posterior baby? Well, when I first came out in training, I always felt posterior babies was a, was an, uh, oh, uh, because that's what we were taught, that it's more likely the baby won't descend. It's more likely the mom will have back labor. Uh, it's more likely that we might have to instrument the mom with using vacuum or forceps. 
And we used to actually do full on, I mean, in the good old days, Blitz, we actually rotated babies. We put on uh, Keelans or certain types of forceps and we would and we would take the baby and we would turn the baby all the way around from mm-hmm. occiput posterior to occiput anterior. This is at an era where we, you know, we were really good at palpating and good at knowing where babies were because obviously you don't want to turn the baby's head the wrong way because <laughs> that that draws up an image that's not very pleasant to think about. But but it was always was always an uh-oh that the baby's occiput posterior. Nowhere in that period of time did we ever consider that the, our model of care was encouraging babies to be occiput posterior, and that being the model of women with an epidural and laying flat on their back, um, and and yeah. baby, and babies then not having a chance to navigate the pelvis as nature intended, which is to communicate with its mom, have its mom move and and change positions and do things to help rotate the baby the right way. And I do believe, and again, I don't have data on this, but I do believe that the what people anecdotal things that people see are we see increased occiput posterior babies and women with epidurals and i just think that that's that seems to be my experience as well back in the day yeah well you know i'll I'll give you a pass on that one because admittedly most midwives also are an o with posterior babies because we know that without pain medication our clients are often going to experience a lot of discomfort and it leads to longer labors and more dysfunctional labor patterns. So I support many, many have supported and support many, many women in navigating labor. And I will tell you, the women who report having back labor, because I myself personally never had back labor, talk about that quote unquote pain, which I do believe that they really are feeling a lot of pain in their back is worse than what they are feeling with labor contractions. Every single one of them, when I talk to them about it, they're like, the contractions are not bad. This is unbearable. And, you know, we've talked about before that you're not meant to suffer. The intention of supporting you and having a natural unmedicated delivery is not to suffer through this experience. And and I think that when we see somebody who is not coping well and is really suffering, um, it's really hard to watch, you know, even for all of us that are so experienced in supporting people in labor, that kind of thing, you, you do end up feeling helpless, you know, to be able to give them what they need to be able to move through. And so, um, you know, it's interesting trying to like talk about posterior position and stuff without a pelvis or without visual aids, you know, and just trying to describe it orally on a podcast. So when you were talking about anterior and posterior, the one thing I would like to simplify for people who are not birth workers is that anterior is the front of the body and posterior is the back of the body. And so when we get a baby whose position is that the back of their head is against the mom's, like you said, sacrum or against their back, uh, you basically have bone on bone there. And that's what's happening. Almost every woman in a normal physiologic birth will talk about discomfort in their back, especially as the baby is really descending through the pelvis and we're getting closer to delivery. So the distinction between this is that even on the onset of labor, they're feeling the contractions more in their back than they are in the front. 
not just at some point in labor, it changes because the back does have, you know, as the pelvis opens and makes room for baby to come in, the back actually does open. And that is not comfortable as that process happens. But this posterior labor is a little bit different. So this particular mom had already had a home birth with another midwife, really good experience, but she had surgery on her spine when she was 12 years old and has a lot of dysfunction in her body. Normally she's got a limp, one leg is longer than the other. So her pelvis is already imbalanced. And one of the things that we do, if we're trying to help get the baby into quote unquote, the optimal position, which is like you were saying, when the baby is laying on the left side, as labor begins, what we know is that most of those babies, unless their head is entering the pelvis asynclitic, which is where their head is kind of tilted a little bit, it's not coming straight on. So the diameter is wider than if they have their head nice and tucked and it's coming in straight on. So an asynclitic baby can often lend itself to having a more not straightforward. I, I don't want to use that word dysfunctional labor pattern, but um, the, the contractions are not moving straight forward. So they're not getting longer, stronger, and closer together in the way that we normally would see. We might have lulls in labor, periods of time where things kind of plateau and it's you know, rest and be grateful period of time. And that's normal in, in, a, normal, in a normal labor. So if a baby is entering the pelvis at from the left side, we often know that that labor pattern is straightforward and we're going to kind of have a straightforward physiologic experience. When the baby is on the right side of the body or is in that posterior position as labor begins, we often know that we might be seeing things be a little bit more dysfunctional. So during pregnancy, there's things that you can do walking, chiropractic, spinning babies, which we've talked about a lot on, on this podcast, uh, to try and get the pelvis nice and balanced so that when the baby does enter the pelvis, we have that straightforward physiologic experience. Well, her baby was persistently on the right side throughout her whole pregnancy. She was doing chiropractic. She was walking. She was dancing. We did spinning babies stuff with her. I mean, it was just, she was doing all the right things. And that's the other thing to know is that sometimes you'll do all the right things and your baby will still be in one of these positions at the onset of labor. And that's why I mentioned that babies look for where they can make room, where there is room in the body, right? So if you have an imbalance that you can correct, great, but you might have an imbalance like she did. That's just the way that she holds herself in her body that that couldn't really be corrected. And we just had to walk this path with this baby in this position as we entered labor. And from the very beginning, she talked about the discomfort in her back. And because she had already had a vaginal delivery, you know, we treated her like any other multip and expected that it was possible that she could have her baby quickly. So we were there on the earlier side of things and her contractions, and she said that this happened last time too, her contractions never got close together. They were always spread out. And another sign that something might be off is that she would have these really long contractions, um, like two minutes plus long contractions. And so it was really this balancing act of how much can she tolerate in terms of the discomfort that she's feeling 
And because too, it was one of those flavors where (laughs) it's so hard to even describe. It was like, someone is crying out for help. Do you know? It's just Mm -hmm. like that, that suffering thing. Like she just needed something to be different and talked about the hospital many, many, many times. And she kind of laughs about it now because she would look at every, you know, she had a lot of people there supporting her. That's what worked for her last time. That's what she was born at home. Her mom had a lot of people around. It's just kind of her thing. And so she would look at people and be like, do you think I should go to the hospital? Do you think I should go to the hospital? And, you know, everybody was just really wanting to support what she wanted. And so we were trying to be encouraging. And at some point I said, look, this, she asked me, of course. And I said, I cannot make that decision for you. Your baby looks great. Your vitals are great. You know, I, I believe that you can birth this baby at home vaginally. And I'm here to support whatever you decide. If you decide that that's what you need to do, we're going to be right there by you. You're you know surrounded by so much love and support. And But this went on for many, 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 many hours. And of course, we were trying lots of things, lots of uh, spinning babies. We did all of the side lie release. We did the inversions. We did jiggle. We did all kinds of different things to try and help that balance happen as much as possible. But for people who, you know, have supported a laboring person, you know that there's kind of this when they're struggling like that, you don't want to push them too hard because you don't want to push them over the edge where they finally say, that's it. I can't do anymore. So it's like this, let's rest, let's get in the tub, let's, you know, try all kinds of things. And she was getting to the point where I could tell we were, we were either going to go in or something had to shift. And so she asked, we were talking, she was in the tub again for a little bit of relief. And I said, there are some things that we can do but I haven't really wanted to push you because you seem like you're, you know, already really struggling with the intensity of labor. And I just need you to know that this is going to be difficult. And she was ready. Like she was at that point where she was like, I've got to try something. And so we did um, uh, shake them apples with her butt in the air and her chest down. So her booty's in the air and she's So hands and knees, but kind of like more on your elbows, your butt is elevated and you take a rebozo or a sheet or something and you jiggle. And the intention is to bring the baby back out of the pelvis so that can either correct its asynclyticism or maybe be able to do that rotation. And then we took right after that, we got her an exaggerated Sims where you lay on one side and I have peanut ball with me. So we used a peanut ball in between her, her legs and brought her knee up as close to her chest as possible over the peanut ball with the bottom leg straightened. And then you turn your chest as far as you can to the, to the bed. And this is very uncomfortable, but what it does is it can rotate a baby into a better position. And so if you put a mom in that position, who's not on an epidural, you need to give her a lot of support and encouragement. So everybody who's attending should be right there with her. I was giving her like a full body massage 
I told her, I said, you know, only the, only my moms who are having really long labors get the benefit of having one of my massages. So just giving her all the love I possibly could. And right before we did that, I was in the living room and I just had this moment where I felt really, I was talking to the rest of the birth team and, you know, we were brainstorming about things that we could do. By the way, we already did sterile injections that you can try to distract the body from the pain that she's feeling in her back. You use tiny little needles and you inject sterile water in four places on her, on her lower back. And it's supposed to be a distraction. Well, that didn't help. And we did tens, a TENS machine, which sometimes can be helpful and that didn't help. So we had already tried all of the tools that we could think of. So we were trying to discuss what would be the next steps. I got a little teary eyed. And, you know, it was just like that, what I was describing earlier, like my heart just went out to her of just like really wanting to help move her over this hump so that she could have the experience that she was wanting to have. So we did these positions and then she had not been able to stand on her own two feet for a while because her legs are something that could be really painful for her. And she stood up in all of her power, her belly had totally shifted position. Like you could just see that the baby had changed. Her pain level changed, her coping changed, like everything shifted. And she asked me if I would do another vaginal exam. I had done one earlier in the day um, to just reassure her that things were progressing. And she was like nine centimeters at that point and baby was plus one. And definitely, I mean, it was so vastly different and we were able to get on the stool and I helped kind of direct her because she was just so tired. And I realized that her, her tailbone was very immobile. Like it just, that's probably why this couldn't turn. It just wasn't able to move out of the way. And that is you know, the intensity that she was feeling in her back. Um, And so within, I'd say, 10 minutes of being on the birth stool, baby emerged and it was a beautiful delivery. And I'm just so grateful that I had these tools and this knowledge about the pelvis. And I, I was thinking as I was starting to tell this story about talked about in a recent podcast about doctors not learning any of this information about how the pelvis changes and how, you know, in different parts of the pelvis, there are different things that we can do to help facilitate and get the baby to be able to get into a better position. Um, Yeah, I was just, I'm so grateful that I have those and it doesn't always work. I know that there are many midwives who have used all of these tools and really have not been able to get a baby to turn. But I think the thing about posterior babies is really patience. And it's difficult when a woman is having that much pain to be able to just continue to be patient with the, how long that rotation and descent takes. Um, but I was so happy and, you know, it was just those really challenging births when you're able to like help that woman move beyond that is so transformative for everybody in the room that mom sent me a text message a couple of days later and she's just said, you know, I am changed. And that is why I do this work. And that is the benefit or the beautiful outcome from these challenges, because we talk all the time about, you know, birth is not just about the birth of the baby necessarily, but it's this rites of passage, you know, of stepping over this threshold and, and seeing yourself move beyond what you thought you were capable of doing 
And that is where that transformative experience can happen. And when we really hold the space for that, then women can find that for themselves. So that's the story. That is the story. That's not just a story. That is the story. Like our listeners, Bliss, I'm sitting here in awe of just listening to you tell the story. That's why normally we don't have monologues on the, well, except for me on the podcast, but that was very important to hear it without interruption, that whole story. I actually, you know me, I've been jotting down some some comments <laughs> and questions to ask you. Hopefully that will be questions that maybe some listeners had. Because you know perfectly well that this woman, if she would have had a hospital birth, she would have had an epidural early in labor. The baby would have stayed posterior. She would have either had a tough operative delivery or a cesarean section for failure to descend. Stu, have you noticed the element is everywhere these days? I Have you noticed that? I feel like maybe we had something to do with it. Yeah, I have. I know maybe it's, maybe <laughs> it's growing. And you know what? It really, I'm seeing it in professional sports. I'm seeing uh-huh. celebrities and and famous athletes all supporting it. And, and I'm not surprised yeah, because you, you and I know we don't, we don't support products we don't believe in. And I, I drink Element every day. Yeah. Right? Element. Awesome. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, as I like to say, like us, and it doesn't have any sugar. So many, so many drinks that you want to, you know, imbibe in have things in it that maybe aren't so good for you. And what's so great about this is it has that balance of electrolytes that you need for your body. And it's great for birth workers. As you were saying, athletes, we can recommend it to our pregnant mamas, laboring, postpartum. And it's just an amazing, and it's a little packet that you can just toss in your water bottle. So it's also really environmentally conscious as well. Yeah. And you can pack them when you go on trips and you can you can use them when you're on the go. And it's not a substitute for obviously eating healthy, but literally when you're on the go, rather than drinking something that's unhealthy, it's certainly like like I'm historically <laughs> have done for most of my adult life. I love using my element. And of course, I'm a big fan of the raspberry salt. And you your favorite was the mango chili, but it comes in grapefruit, watermelon, citrus, orange, lemon, chocolate, and unflavored as well. So we love them and we hope that. You will support them by going to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts. That's it's not a code word. It's just a backslash. So that's drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. You'll get a free sample pack with every order. So we want to thank Element for being our sponsor for a really long time now. And we love them. You do. Thank you. I have a question. This was her second baby. Yeah. What happened? Did this happen with baby number one? She had a very long, painful labor, but last time it was not in her back last time. And that was 11 years ago. Oh, oh, okay. So there's been, have there been any, any changes to her orthopedic situation in 11 years or just the normal aging of 11 years? Yeah, just, you know, and I'm sure whatever dysfunction she has in her body has only increased with time in terms of compensation and stuff like that. So she did have a long and painful labor, but it was very different than this one in terms of where she was experiencing it. Yeah. And then because it went by so fast, could you describe once again that peanut ball maneuver that you that you describe where one leg is straight out? Could you could you just I want to know what it is. And again, I could probably play it back, but just just describe that maneuver again. Does it have a name? Exaggerated Sims. Okay. So you do it with pillows too. You don't have to have a peanut ball, but a peanut 
ball is nice because it keeps the pelvis nice and open. And so basically you put a woman on one side and it's best to do both sides, but we didn't need to do that because you want to try and do balance, right? So you put her on a side, the bottom leg, the one that's on the bed is straight and the top leg is bent like a, like a figure four, but you bring that knee as close to her chest as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And with a belly, sometimes it's difficult, but really want to get the knee up as close as possible. And then you have her rotate towards the bed as far as she can. So if she can put her chest towards the bed and that leg straight, she's kind of twisted, right? She's contorted. And what that does is it with the contractions, you want to do it for three contractions. If you can, it's not easy, but if you can get, if you can get her to commit to three contractions and we did a countdown with each one of them, then a lot of times what can happen with the, with contraction, sometimes that torque can move the baby into a different position. So this is, this is a rotation. Oh, go ahead. One of the things that Nicole said in, in, um, in her workshop is that you only need the littlest amount of change to make room for a baby to be able to do what it needs to do. It doesn't have to be massive. It just needs to be a little bit. So, yeah. And this is, and she, and she rotates toward the center of the bed. This is not one where she's draped over the edge of the bed. That's a different. No, thing. this one is, she's, this one Got is, it. she's on, on the bed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that's really cool. The other thing that, that you mentioned Barboza, which I thought was a good, you know, that you call the bag of apples or whatever it's called, but you know, that's good, yeah. In, in the medical world, uh, you also mentioned that because of that, you're trying to get the baby to move back up a little bit. And I think there's a really good lesson to be learned about when you have a situation, whether it's a breach or whether it's a head down baby and progress seems to have stopped possibly because of the positioning of the baby in mom's pelvis, that the thing to do is to actually consider reducing station. And what we learned, because we were always hands-on, and was actually going in and someone's far enough dilated, trying to what's called manually rotate mm -hmm. baby's head, taking it from OP using our fingers and getting, mm -hmm. you know, and the fontanelles and the, and the sutures and trying to get the baby's head to rotate. Now you can't rotate a head just like that. You have to reduce the station, mm -hmm. push it further up, rotate it, and then have mom bring it back down. And over my career, I have done that many times. Obviously, it's better if you can do it externally so that you don't have to put a woman through the idea of having your hand up there trying to do that. But it is an interesting tool to have in the tool bag to know that if a woman's far enough along and she's suffering like that, that is an option to try to do it internally as well. And yeah. Rixa Freeze came up with a good analogy that I use at the breach conferences because it was hers and I want to give her credit for it. But when we have a breech baby that is stuck sacrum transverse, and normally the babies will rate, rotate sacrum anterior or tum to bum is a normal way for they'll rotate. And when they're not rotating, right, sometimes you go in and you try to do your maneuvers, whether it's your love set maneuver or your per hands maneuver, and the baby just will not budge. It will not rotate. Yeah. So you can't sweep an arm out. So what you do then, instead of forcing the baby, you take the baby and you actually push it back up inside, maybe an inch or two. And then almost always yeah. when you do, you can then rotate the baby any way you which want and then and then finish your delivery. And the analogy yeah. that she uses is if you have a kitchen drawer and you have a wooden spoon that's stuck in the kitchen drawer, you may have heard this too, but mm -hmm. I hadn't heard it until last year. You wouldn't keep pulling on the drawer to try to get drawer open. You would actually push the drawer in, flip the spoon over to the side and then pull the drawer open easily. 
And so that's the same thing you can do that with breach. And you can do that with an occiput posterior or, or a severely asynclitic baby. Uh, yeah. Asynclitism is hard to predict. We see, we see it a lot more than, than I think I used to see it, or maybe we're just calling it more. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know, again, if that's, that's a thing that was with epidurals or with you know the way we're managing labor in the hospital, but asyncretism is a diagnosis that you see all the time for the reason for a vacuum or a forceps delivery. And the beauty of of certain forceps that have an override overlapping shank is that they're designed to actually collect correct asyncretism. You put them on yeah. and then you correct the shank, and then it shifts the baby's head. It's just that that's a, that's another art and skill that's never really taught anymore. Yeah, and so different. Our taught, we call it um, dial the phone, the old rotary phones, you know, how you'd put your finger in and you would turn it. Yeah. So it's kind of that's that's how they describe it is you're putting your hand in and you're rotating the head. I have this skill in my in my pocket. I don't like to do that unless I really feel like like if, if what we had done hadn't worked and she was still willing to do some work, I'd, I would have gone in and tried to do it internally. But yes, you need to push the baby out of the pelvis in order to be able to rotate it because it's stuck. And then the other thing I want to mention that I didn't talk about before is one of the things that we talk about as midwives of why we're seeing more babies in funky positions and, the, and more of these dysfunctional labor patterns um, is because of the lifestyle that we're living now. You know, we oftentimes we're sitting at desks for hours at a time, then we get in our cars and we sit, then we, we come home. But yeah. And so, you know, back in the day, we did a lot of more physical labor. We were like on our hands and knees, scrubbing our floors. We were doing gardening work. We were, you know, so we were moving a lot more throughout our daily life. And so that's, you know, if you want to dive deeper into that, you don't have a lot of knowledge about that. Spinning babies is a really good resource for optimal fetal positioning and how to do what they call the daily essentials, which gets your body into this balance, just simple stretches and stuff. And, and how, when you sit, you know, the way what we describe it is if you had a flashlight that was coming off of your belly button, so you had that light that was going straight forward, when you sit down in a deep couch or something, sometimes you'll slouch, right? So you get like a curve in your back and you'll see that light go towards the ceiling. So you don't want that because the heaviest part of the baby's body in a road towards the back of your body. So you want to sit up either on a birth ball or with pillows or something like that. So that flashlight is either straight forward or going downwards. Doesn't you know, I tell my clients, it doesn't mean you can't lay down and watch a show or something like that. You don't want to like overanalyze it, but you want to keep your body moving and you and you want to notice that when you are sitting down that you have your body in a position that it, this is towards the end of pregnancy, that your baby's not going to be in one of these persistent positions. I think, Bliss, you're right. I think I think better than all that was your first suggestion is that people should get outside and start, you know, working in the garden and, and scrubbing their floors. That's what they should be doing. Scrubbing, right. scrubbing floors, crawling across on your hands and knees. That motion is really, really good for sure. So, and then the other thing that's interesting is once a baby comes out, if you weren't sure what was happening with position, once a baby comes out and you look at how they're molding and how their head is shaped, you will see signs that will give you indications of where the baby was stuck. And so with this baby, it was classic posterior where across the front of the baby's head was a 
indentation and then swelling behind it. So the baby was getting stuck right on the pubic bone and it was just very obvious. So, you know, if you have a dysfunctional labor pattern and you have a woman who is uncomfortable, you want to try and, and try some of these positions to get the baby to be able to rotate if the mom can cope. And I think the other thing for moms to know is that back labor is one of the most challenging kinds of labors that you can have. At one point, her sister came up to me and she was really worried. And she looked at me and she goes, she has a really high tolerance for pain. When her appendix burst, she didn't even act like she was in that much pain. So I am actually concerned at how much pain she's expressing. And I said, yeah, this is one of the worst labor patterns that you can pot. Like she's not making it up. She's in a lot of pain, but nothing is wrong. Like the baby's okay. She's okay. She's not going to break. She just has to walk through this or decide to go in for pain medication. And if you decide you need to go in for pain medication, this is a perfect example of when pain medication can be a godsend because you're not intended to suffer. And if you decide you want to walk through this fire and you can, and you have the support to be able to move through like she did, great. But you also have the ability to be able to go in and get an epidural. And that was always an option for her. Yeah. And in an ideal situation, you want, you know, that's why midwives, again, spend a lot of time during the prenatal visit of trying to get babies in an ideal position. I want to make sure that everybody listening realizes it's not something to stress about. This is not something to like be starting to panic about at 32 weeks. Is my baby OP or is my baby breaches my baby your baby will find its position but by keeping your pelvis as mobile as possible and being active and doing those things you're going to minimize the op- possibility that this is going to happen and again in this particular mom it might have been that there was some anatomic issues that that were part of it as well uh, but being in optimal health and being in optimal positioning is something we should we should want to be before we go into labor as opposed to trying to correct it once we're in labor Yeah. And the other thing that I want to say that I was mentioning in the beginning is that sometimes you'll do all the things and your baby will want to come through in a posterior position. And that's because they have a wisdom in terms of where your pelvis, where there is the most room. So you also have to know that if you've done all the things and the baby's still coming that way, that the baby has its own wisdom that we also have to respect. Same with like breech babies, right? Like the reason that this baby is coming through breech is because there's something that happened with them and that's the best way for them to come through. So that's the other thing I just want to make sure that people know is that there is a wisdom as well from the baby's side. And so do all the right things, take really good care of yourself, have a good support team, and then kind of surrender that the baby has its design. Great. Great. Thank you for that whole presentation on that case, because I think we, we all learn a lot from that. And, and the fact is that the page, I mean, this woman was really lucky to have you and your team because she did get the birth that she wanted and she had to work through it. But, but a lot of, a lot of situations wouldn't have ended up the same way. I have one little letter here that is sort of a corollary to the positioning that I wanted, to, I wanted to read to you because I want your opinion on this because it sort of baffled me that this is actually the new position of the ACOG. And I'm, I wasn't sure about, I didn't know about this. Maybe you've heard about it, but this is from Bonnie in uh, Phoenix. And she writes, oh, all the usual accolades about our podcasts and stuff like that. <laughs> we wanted to share with you that recently while supporting a client at a hospital in Phoenix, the hospital-based midwife brought up your show 
and we both gushed over how much we love listening to you. But that's not why I'm reading it. I'm reading it for this. My question for you both is regarding laboring down with an epidural. Oh, yeah. I recently read as of 2019, ACOG no longer recommends the practice of laboring down if the patient has an epidural. Can you elaborate on the purpose of this? Does this improve outcomes for the mother and baby? I'm assuming she's saying not laboring down. Does that improve it? And if so, how? I still see this happening frequently with hospital-based midwives, and I'm curious about the discrepancy. I know midwives do not have to go off the ACOG guidance, thank God. Is there a different recommendation for midwives or are midwives here or are the midwives here I am interacting with just behind? I'm hoping you can shed some light on this practice here and in my community. Thank you, Bonnie. So what's your take on laboring down? Because I didn't know that ACOG came out against it. Uh, I was actually going to ask you if you knew why they would have recommended that. Not recommending against laboring down? Yeah. I, you know, I my mind automatically goes to the fact that it takes longer. That's huh. that, That's where my mind goes. You know, they want to actively do coach pushing with a woman who can't feel her legs. Uh, that makes no, that makes far less sense to me yeah. than letting a woman labor down, especially with breaches. We tend to want them to labor down. That's kind of the talk that we have amongst ourselves is we don't want a woman pushing with her breech baby until she has the fetal ejection reflex and can't resist pushing. And I don't know why that would be any difference with a head down baby or with an epidural. And I've seen women, you know, pushing with an epidural when they're so numb that they don't even know they're having a contraction. And the nurses are telling them, oh, you're having a contraction now. Let's, and they pull their legs back and they start pushing with them. And it's like, you know, unless the baby's in trouble and we need to expedite things for medical, true medical reasons, I don't understand that. I don't remember seeing that ACOG statement about not laboring down. That's why I wondered if you had seen it. No, but maybe we look into it and see if we can find out why they're suggesting it. But from my personal experience of supporting people in the hospital, so for those of you who don't know what this term would mean is once the cervix is dilated to 10 centimeters, usually in a hospital environment, they want to start pushing. But there started to become this wisdom that if the baby wasn't that deep in the pelvis, then maybe you could just allow the uterus to do its job of bringing the baby down deeper before you actually had the mom to start actively pushing because pushing can be physically tiring. And if the baby is really high, then there's obviously more pushing to get the baby to be able to come out. So I'm, I've seen it work really well, especially because there's cutoffs a lot of times in the hospital where they'll say you've been pushing for too long. So you don't want to start early because then you're against the clock, right? But without an epidural, like you were saying, you don't have any of that laboring down process because you're waiting for the natural instinct to happen. So with, with the epidural in place, we don't have the advantage of that. So I don't, I have no idea what would be a downside besides time of why they would make that recommendation. So I think it would be good for us to look into it a little bit more and see what their, uh, what their justification is, because if they're going to put out a paper on it or a statement about it, they must have some references or something that they are pointing to of why they would do that. No. No? Okay. No. Two-thirds two of their recommendations, Bliss, by their own admission, are not based on science. Oh, okay. They're based on consensus opinion. And what kind of consensus opinion do you expect to get when you take <laughs> five or 10 academicians who work in an institution who really aren't delivering babies much anymore anyway, yeah. come up with a 
an idea. Yeah. Um, that's why my initial thought went immediately to why do they want to waste more time? Because the whole idea of labor and delivery is to get babies labored and del- moms labored and babies delivered and not to spend a lot of time just sitting around waiting. Uh, I know that that sounds cruel, but that is the medical model. That is how it works. And so why would this be any different to give the, I don't want to, I don't want to like condemn them, but I also don't want to give them positive motives when a lot of times they don't have a positive motive. Yeah. They still want pregnant women to be injected with all three vaccines, 28 weeks with no data whatsoever supporting their safety um, at the same time. Right. Let alone alone. So this is the same organization. So I don't know. Bonnie will look into it. Probably should have done that. Like I said, this week has been a mess for me. Uh, I really appreciate a lot of the thoughts and prayers that people have sent me. I am fine. I will do fine. I may not win any archery competitions in the near future, but (laughs) 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 yeah. So otherwise I'm fine. So yeah. So that's about it for me. What about you? Okay. Well, take good care of yourself. Rest, get out in the sunshine. Just be gentle with yourself right now while you're healing. That's yeah, awesome. spring is here. And, and guess what I did the week before I left? Did the boxes. Well, I did what? Right? Did what? Your gardeners got your boxes ready? Yes, for I, I actually did some I did some exercises for my pelvis because I got down on my knees and I was planting strawberry plants. So, oh, nice. Yeah, because spring has sprung and I'm really happy about it. And it's my first spring here in southern utah and it's the weather is beautiful right now because it's you know it's 45 at night and 70 in the daytime and that's absolutely perfect and pretty soon it'll be 75 at night and 105 in the daytime and that won't be so great but it's all good so i, I i'm looking forward to whatever life has to throw me whatever curveballs it takes i'm going to swing at them there we go oh there you go that's the spirit Okay, sweetheart. Well, it was great to talk to you and um, enjoy your weekend. And for everybody else, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 